You guys can uh, open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, one of our uh, handsome ushers will get one to you. <clears throat> but we're going to be Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 18 to 20. Can be a little, little different today. Uh, actually, I'm tackling something from what you might call a more apologetic perspective. Uh, not meaning I'm saying sorry, but uh, in the Greek, uh, the word behind that uh, means to, to give it a defense for the faith. So, I want you to read this, and then uh, I'll, I'll pray and start to explain to you what I'm what I mean. Luke nine chapter. Or Luke chapter 9, verses 18-20. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old is risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Let's pray. God, I, I comes to my mind that in um, Matthew's account of Peter's confession here, you turn to him and say, huh, blessed are you, Simon. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my Father who is in heaven. Natural man looking with natural eyes doesn't see. Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Lord of all. Such things are hidden from our eyes. And Lord, I'm praying today that you would reveal, that you would unveil. God, I'm praying that as I, to some degree, make a case for the Lordship of Jesus, that you would do what you did for Peter, for those here. You would open their eyes. You would open our eyes. You would meet the facts, the truth of Christ with the Spirit of Christ. Our hearts would soften, our eyes would open, our rebellion would cease. Our lips would be opened and the confession would be made. You are the Christ of God. Jesus, we know that you are. We know that you suffered in our place. You rose again. You've ascended on high and you are reigning. Seated at the right hand of your Father. Would you come and manifest yourself here in this place again today? It's in your name I ask these things. Amen. 
Um, you, you you would recall from hopefully last time, last week, that um, I really kind of, for quite a while, uh, took a little bit of time and, and showed you how, uh, for many chapters now, uh, in Luke's gospel, questions have been swirling uh, surrounding Jesus and his identity. Uh, people have been just asking, who is this? Who could say such a thing? Who could do such a thing? What kind of man is this? Even Herod is asking it, right? And now we see that even Jesus himself is trying to encourage this sort of questioning. People that are coming in, people that are seeing these things going on, are starting to ask, starting to wonder, who is this man from Nazareth? Jesus has seemed up to this point relatively satisfied to let all the conjecture kind of swirl around without offering much in the way of clarification, even to his own uh, disciples. But then as we come to this conversation here with his disciples, make note, after Jesus was praying alone, Significant moments in uh, the life of our Lord happen after praying or in the context of him praying, especially in Luke's gospel. But as we come to this conversation here with these disciples, the issue of his identity, it seems, has reached a crisis point. And he's no longer willing to let the conjecture just kind of swirl. He's now going to speak through it. He's now going to press the issue. So he asks his disciples there in verse 18, who do the crowds He's going to start out there. Who do the crowds say that I am? And we get that standard catalog of answers that we've already looked at. John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet of old. But then he presses the issue, kind of turns on them in that moment, and presses it in to their own hearts. Forces them to come up with something for themselves. You see it there in verse 20, the first part. But who do you Say that I am. Okay, we established what the crowds have said. Now, let's get to the point. Who do you say that I am? It is an arresting question. It should stop us. It's a question on which everything turns. It's the most important question a human being can ask in all the universe. It is the most important question. The road just divides at this point for good, for eternal everlasting good, and for eternal everlasting ill. And each one of us, each one of us in this room has to answer that question for ourselves. Who do you say that I am? So it's this question that we're going to give ourselves to um, entirely here this morning. I just want to sit back. I want to think about this. It seemed good to me um, to outline for us here the various options a person has when they come to try to answer this question. Who is this man from Nazareth? Who would we say that he is? And what I am thinking of in particular here now is not who the crowds say that Jesus was like back in Jesus' day. 
Again, I said we, are, we looked at that last time. What I'm more interested in is now, here, 21st century, modern world, who do these kind of crowds say that Jesus is? And what do we make of all that? What are my options when it comes to uh, uh, conclu- making a conclusion or answering this question? Now, in all of this, it's my great hope that when the facts have been considered, however briefly or lengthy for some of you, uh, they'll have to be this morning, the only real and reasonable option I'm praying uh, is left before you when it's all done is, man, I got to align my answer, my confession with Peter's in this text. You are the Christ of God. Or, you are the Lord of all. Um, like I said, I'm going to go a little bit different here this morning. And um going to deal with some of what you might call reasons for the faith. Reasons for receiving Christ in this way. Reasons for considering him to be who he says he is, Lord of all. I wonder if in your understanding of faith, you've always seen it as pinned against reason. Um, as if, okay, faith is that leap in the dark that we do over here. Reason is what all those sinful people do with their sciences and their earthly human learning. I'm here to tell you, God does not pin these two against one another. Paul, all throughout the book of Acts, is seen reasoning with people, holding out truth. The Christian faith is reasonable, more reasonable, in fact, than atheism, secularism, or any other ism. The issue, typically, is that we just don't like it. We, we subordinate our reason to our hearts, our desires. So if what Jesus and what God says is true is not something I like, well then, I don't want to believe it. You see? But there's this really cool scene um, near the end of the book of Acts when Paul, he's in prison just like Jesus is. I mean, his life, his life basically parallels Christ uh, in ridiculous ways. He's uh, brought before the governor in Judea and uh, and then also uh, Herod Agrippa, the king of the Jews at that time. And um, as he's making a case, as he's reasoning uh, uh, before Agrippa about um, um, the crucifixion and the resurrection, Festus, who's the governor, says, now you are out of your mind, Paul. You've lost your mind. Your great learning has driven you mad. That's what he says. And this is Acts 26. Paul looks at him and he says, he says, man, the words that I speak are true and they are rational. The words about the crucified Lord, the resurrected Lord, this man from Nazareth, they are rational. And and Agrippa goes, by the end of it, he says, if I were to hear more of this, you would convince me to come to your side. So I'm just going to kind of lay out this morning that I'm, I'm hoping that we can see our faith has deep roots and that it is reasonable. And that receiving Christ or Jesus as the Christ, as the Lord, is really uh, uh, the most reasonable thing a person can do in light of the facts. 
But here are the various options. I, I see five basic options that can be held out when it comes to answering this question, who do you say that Jesus is? First uh, option, he is a legend. Second option, he is a luminary or a good teacher. Let's try to keep with the alliteration there, okay? In case you don't know what that word means. He's, he's a light in the darkness. He's a good teacher, a wise man, a great prophet. So he's a legend. He's a luminary. He's a liar. He's a lunatic. Or he's Lord of all. As far as I can see, that's the basic extent of your options when it comes to answering this question. So we're going to take them one by one. I'm actually going to spend the most time on this first one because it's going to lay groundwork for what comes next. Option number one, he's a legend. Jesus is a legend. Who do you say that he is? Well, people in our day didn't exist. When we talk about legend, you could have one of two um, things in your mind there. One a little bit more extreme than another. The first says he didn't exist at all. I mean, he's just fabricated. The second uh, uh, way that people might run with this is to say, well, okay, yes, the uh, historical Jesus did exist. I mean, he's a real person in history, did some things probably there around uh, Jerusalem, but his followers so embellished his work and his life that now, I mean, it's been so shrouded, the real Jesus has been so shrouded in superstition, in mythology, in all this, you know, uh, goofy talk about supernatural stuff that if we were to get to him, which I think, you know, many scholars say, okay, we can, but you need our help. We're going to have to pull back the husks of all this to get to the little kernel of the real Jesus that's underneath it. That's... The typical presentation, I think, that we get, and I think if you try to share Christ with anybody, that comes up. Let me take um, each of those options here for a moment. First, with regard to the most extreme, that Jesus didn't exist at all, let me just tell you, virtually no respectable scholar holds that position at all. Virtually no scholar, if he's going, if he wants respect, is going to say that Jesus didn't exist historically. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, a New Testament scholar, writes, uh, Some writers may toy with the fancy of a Christ myth, but they do not do so on the ground of historical evidence. The historicity of Christ is as axiomatic or certain uh, for an unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. It is not historians who propagate the Christ myth theories, he says. Any, any respectable historian, scholar, is not the one saying that Jesus did not exist historically. It's the quacks, it's the ones that no one respects that are saying those sorts of things. And the reason why, among many others, is that there's just too much evidence, even outside the Bible, that this man from Nazareth existed. There's too much uh, extra-biblical, even non-Christian evidence from within the first uh, and second centuries A.D. that just show this man, this man Jesus was there, and he started something, and they couldn't stop it. I mean, it's incredible. You look back at some of these sources that we have, and you see them talking about his life, talking about his death, talking about how all of his followers are claiming this uh, resurrection, or what they call this superstition. This, 
this crazy superstition that these people have. So you have, you know, Roman uh, gov- or historians like Tacitus and Suetonius writing about him. You have a uh, governor in Asia Minor, Pliny the Younger, writing about him. Or perhaps you've heard of the Jewish historian Josephus writing about this man from Nazareth and these people that are calling him the Christ, even God. So none of these men who are writing about him, and this is the important thing, none of these men who are writing about him have anything to gain from lending credibility to these histor- this historical man. They have nothing to gain. They're opposed. This is why, interestingly enough, Encyclopedia Britannica, in their article on Jesus, looking at some of these sources and some of these accounts, writes this. These independent accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 18th, during the 19th, and at the beginning of the 20th centuries. In other words, this idea that the historical Jesus didn't exist at all is relatively a modern phenomenon. I mean, you had to be so far removed from the real thing, and so far removed from reality, that you could even gain any sort of credence in saying that he didn't exist at all. That's a relatively modern phenomenon. It happened thousand, you know, a couple thousand years later. People can maybe get away with saying it. But no one before that. I gotta go fast. I got a lot for you this morning. And if, I, listen, I know I'm talking to Christians here. I understand that. But let me tell you something. Huh. This, this, is, this is important, not just for your evangelism. I mean, yes, absolutely, great, fine. So you can reach your family, absolutely. But man, am I the only one who struggles with doubts? Am I the only one who kind of looks and goes, oh, they're, the whole culture is calling us idiots. Oh, they're all saying that there's really no reason for what we believe. Ah, I shut the door and, 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 and let me you know, go into my little closet and I'll stay with Jesus. Or gosh, maybe I am crazy. I don't know. I mean, this is... I'm just putting this before you to say, man, this this is legitimate. What we're doing here on a Sunday morning gathering to praise, this is so legitimate. Okay. End of parentheses. (laughs) Second second, um, kind of option there under this idea of he is a legend, and probably the more popular, uh, certainly more scholars uh, go this route, in fact most probably, um, that you see is why every Easter you see these sorts of things. Um, This is that idea again that Jesus, okay, existed historically, there was a historical Jesus, but so embellished. You need our help to know who he really is. If you look at him in the Gospels, I mean, gosh, they just put all this supernatural stuff on him. They gave him these these claims of deity. They, they, they talk about a resurrection. Listen, we all know that that stuff didn't happen. That's just kind of the superstition they added over years of oral tradition and other things. And in time, people came to believe it. But let's be honest, that's just back when people thought that, you know, there were goblins and spooks around Now, after the Enlightenment, we know better. So maybe people embellished these things back in the day because of, you know, they were after a power grab of some sort. So talking about Jesus this way allowed them to kind of gain authority in the culture with their people. Maybe they just missed them. I read a whole book by... A brilliant guy who walked away from the faith and his whole 
physician was, yeah, well, the resurrection and the hundreds that saw him, it was just a bereavement vision. In other words, it was a sadness that they had in their heart. And so they all, these hundreds of people all over the place, just kind of saw the, the one that they missed so much. I'm like, man, these are brilliant guys going to crazy lengths to uh, throw off the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me give you uh, three reasons why this whole idea um, that the what's written down for us in the Gospels can't be trusted and it's all uh, shrouded in myth and tarnished. Uh, let me give you three reasons why, even though there are many, many more, this uh, doesn't hold up. Um, first, there are fundamental improbabilities with that hypothesis. And what I mean by that is this, and this, this might be lost on a lot of us again in this modern day, but if you're in the Jewish uh, time, if you're back in this era, let me, let me show you how crazy it is that these people came up with such an idea that Jesus, say, could be God or could be the Christ. Um, the idea that Jesus would be imagined by these little followers uh, to be this divine being, or that they would even want to embellish him as such, is, is incredibly improbable when you think about who the people are that are doing this, namely the Jews. So Jesus was a Jew. His initial followers, the band of disciples that, that propagated this religion, were Jews. The Jews were rigorously monotheistic people. I mean, the most monotheistic, maybe perhaps even the first, really, that kind of emerged in the historical scene, apart from maybe Adam, who knew better, right, in the garden. But they are sitting in a polytheistic world, rigorously monotheistic, and God is drilling it into their minds throughout their history when he takes them out of Egypt in the Exodus, and he brings them into the wilderness, then to Mount Sinai. What is the first thing that he says to them on Mount Sinai? What's the first commandment? What is it there in Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3, he says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that seems to say, well, maybe there are some others, but you're the one above. But then he clarifies Deuteronomy, what's called the Shema, a prayer that the Jewish people would, would say every day. It begins this way in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He said, talk about that reality, tell everybody about it, bind it on your forehead. They would actually do that literally. The Lord our God is one. There's only one in the midst of all these many other polytheists, all this sort of gods. There's only one and his name is Yahweh. Now, you mean to tell me that it's from this group of people that they started claiming that this man from Nazareth, this little peasant from Nazareth, is God? Is one with Yahweh, the son of Yahweh? You could expect such a thing perhaps from Rome, from the Romans. I mean, they would almost kind of do that with like, their emperors, you know, like almost like seeing them as a God in a way, but never from these people. The idea that that's why Jesus was killed. That's why they would kill his followers. The Jews would. They were the most vicious opponents. They're monotheistic to the core, drilled into their history. How can you say that Jesus is God? So the idea that this whole 
thing came, was embellished and added to uh, Jesus, the historical Jesus, by the Jews. Doesn't make any rational sense at all. They are the people least likely on the planet to have ever done such a thing. And then beyond that, beyond all of this, Jesus was not the sort of Messiah that they expected, nor the sort of Messiah that they wanted. Do you understand this? I mean, we read this through uh, throughout the, the gospel accounts, but they wanted a conquering Christ, not a crucified Christ. They, they had no category for that, no understanding of that. They didn't want that. They wanted someone who would come and, and push Rome off their back. So why in the world, why in the world would the people who wanted that sort of a Messiah, who even rebuked Jesus when he talks about the cross and struggled throughout the whole ministry of Jesus to get this idea that he could die and rise and then go and leave them under Rome, why would they go, he's the Christ? Why would they be, they would not do that unless in fact he was. Unless in fact he showed himself to them and convinced them, wow, it's not what we thought. Man, we feel like fools, but he is the thing. He's the real deal. First reason, therefore, um, that the legend idea doesn't work, fundamental improbabilities. Second, early composition. The early composition of the gospel and New Testament records. Um, the simple reality is that the New Testament gospels and the letters arise far too early, far too close to the events they're trying to embellish to pull this sort of thing off. They're not written hundreds of years later. Like when people's memories were fuzzy or the people that all saw it were dead. They're written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. Um, uh, virtually every scholar, it's interesting. Uh, so it's, the earliest accounts we get of Jesus' death and resurrection actually aren't, aren't in the Gospels, at least written accounts. Uh, it's actually Paul's letters. Um, virtually every scholar uh, sees them as being written within 15 to 20 years of Jesus' death. One key example I could share with you is from 1 Corinthians 15, okay, where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, verses 3 through 8, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Do you hear what he's doing? I mean, if the resurrection is a sham, this is not the way you go about promoting it. Do you understand that? This is, this is, this is ridiculously courageous if it's a sham and Paul knows it to say, listen, there were hundreds of eyewitnesses and let me tell you, they're still alive. He is invoking these witnesses and inviting the readers of this public document to go and ask the witnesses for themselves. Get that? History in the old, uh, in the ancient world was verified by way of eyewitness testimony. They didn't have video cameras. They didn't have, you know, Facebook or whatever. All these things streaming in so that you could get it, uh, on your little device. You had to go talk to the people who were there. And he's saying, go talk to them. 
So either Paul is insane, or he knows that if you go and you talk to them, they will validate his claim. Because here's the reality. If the resurrection didn't happen, all anybody had to do, all anybody had to do was walk into Jerusalem, look for some of these that Peter or that Paul claimed were there. And if they find a few and their, their testimonies don't align or it's obvious that you kill Christianity before it ever gets out of the gate. Paul knows that. But he's staking his life on its reality. That's why he says later, man, if the resurrection didn't happen, my life is a joke. I'm giving my life to this. And he's doing it you know, just a few years after Jesus dies. I mean, let me tell you something. So if I were to um, ask you what you ate for lunch this day a year ago, I doubt anyone knows the answer to that question. I might be able to get you to believe something about like what you did on that day. And maybe we can embellish and come up with some sort of a legend, if you will, about uh, February 4th, 2017, what happened in your life. Let me tell you something, though. How many of you remember where you were the moment you saw the news that the you know planes crashed into the Twin Towers? Listen, that was 17 whatever years ago. And I still remember like it was yesterday. The point is, if someone were to come 15, 20 years after an event of that sort of significance happened. So if someone were to come into this room and say, hey, listen, I know you guys think that, you know, way back in the distant future of 17 years ago, planes actually hit the Twin Towers. Let me tell you something. It wasn't planes. It was one of those car bombers kind of drove into the bottom and took it out. How many of you would fall for that? Nobody. Why? Because you don't forget that kind of moment. So there's no one who would forget the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. The guy we thought was a sham, whatever. The guy we thought was dead showed up. To me, damn, 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 damn. So if you're going to go about promoting this... uh, and, and you're aware that it's a legend, you don't go about it this way, calling for eyewitnesses and letting everybody know. You wait until all the eyewitnesses are dead. And then you start embellishing. Okay? By that point, the cannon was already forming. It's because of, oh, I have more. I gotta skip this, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, the third argument I was just gonna say is just counterproductive content. The fact of the matter is, is that the, the, the Gospels don't read like legend. Uh, and there's a lot of counterproductive content in there that if you were writing in a legend and wanting to embellish, you wouldn't put it in. Like women being the witnesses to the resurrection. In every Gospel, women were the first witnesses. Now, our modern sensibilities, we say, what's the big deal? For them, that was a huge deal. Women's testimonies weren't even allowed in court. You realize that? They weren't even admissible. Now, I know that that's offensive, but that's the way that it was. So if you're going to, if you're trying to tell people and prove that the resurrection is real and Jesus is who he says, you don't put women as your first witnesses unless it just, that's the way it happened and they knew God would vindicate the truth. This is why C.S. Lewis, just to conclude this first point, would, um, he was a, uh, 
He was a, a, a scholar, literature scholar. He taught at Oxford, Cambridge. Uh, he writes this. Um, As a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I have read a great deal of legend, and I am quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. So don't go there. Second option that is held out, luminary. He's a luminary. This one, perhaps you get a lot. Um... People can't deny the historicity of Christ, his impact upon uh, the culture, the world. This little man from Nazareth. They also can't deny some of the wisdom in his life and his teachings. So what they try to do, because they're unwilling to bend their knee to him as Lord, is say, well, he's a luminary, he's a good teacher, he's a bright light in the history of man. He's perhaps even the most uh, uh, noble example of humanity. We should follow him. We should listen to him. All of these sorts of things. Um, This is why someone like Gandhi would, would write this. I could accept Jesus as a martyr and embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, a.k.a. the atonement or the salvation of man or that sort of thing, my heart could not accept, he says. He's a great teacher, perhaps a prophet. I like the brother, but no way is he God. Come on, get real. Can't go that that far. But now, if we've sufficiently established that the Gospels are not legends, okay, that it's it's improbable at a fundamental level that, that, that the Jews would embellish in this way, that the accounts were so early that eyewitnesses could easily contradict it, that the content within it is counterproductive and there's no reason for them, and that the genre itself is so clear to literary scholars, it's not uh, legend. Well, then what we need to understand is that when we read the gospel accounts, Jesus doesn't leave this option of good teacher or luminary open to us. It is not a viable option anymore. Why? Because of the radical, grandiose nature of his claims. Let me just... I'm going to start to move quicker, like I said, through these ones. And to help me do that... I. I'm just going to read to you some things here. John Stott, um, in a book I like to give away on Easter, actually, uh, and any time it's a good book to give away, uh, he elucidates this idea wonderfully in his little book, Basic Christianity. He writes this, The most striking feature of the teaching of Jesus is that he was constantly talking about himself. The self-centeredness of the teaching of Jesus immediately sets him apart from the other great religious teachers of the world. They were self-effacing. He was self-advancing. They pointed men away from themselves, saying, that is the truth so far as I perceive it. Follow that. Jesus said, I am the truth. Follow me. The founder of none of the ethnic religions ever dared to say such a thing. The personal pronoun forces itself repeatedly on our attention as we read his words. For example, now he's quoting Jesus from the Gospel of John in just various places. Listen to this. Is this a good teacher? (laughs) Just merely a good teacher? Listen to these claims. I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You hear that? If this is not just embellishments, if this is historical account of real things that Jesus said, does that sound like just merely a good teacher to you? After going on like this for pages, Stott comes out and concludes, we cannot any longer regard Jesus as simply a great teacher if he was completely mistaken in one of the chief subjects of his teaching, namely himself. There is a certain disturbing megalomania about Jesus, which many scholars have recognized. He's a megalomaniac, not a good teacher. If the Bible and the Gospels and New Testament documents are not legends. This leads us now to what's become known as the trilemma. In other words, there's three options here. What are we going to choose? The trilemma described most memorably for us by, again, C.S. Lewis in his classic uh, Mere Christianity. He writes this, and I think I quote it there for you because it's, you, many of you have probably heard it before. It's, it's awesome. I'm trying here, he writes, to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that that open to us. He did not intend to. So there you have it. If he's not a legend, then he cannot be merely a luminary. Is he a luminary? Absolutely, he's a good teacher. It's just so much more. He cannot be a mere luminary. And if he can't be either of those two, then he either must be a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord of all. So we proceed. Option number three, liar. This option would say that all those claims he makes about himself are from malice. This is the devil of hell option that C.S. Lewis talks about because he is knowingly deceiving all of these people, just trying to get a following, even though it doesn't make. I had this argument, too, I won't get it, but it doesn't make any sense because his, his lie is getting him killed. My kids, listen to me, when they lie, you wonder why they lie to get immediate gratification. When I walk into the room and I say, did, did, did you, you know, who did it? And, and Chloe or Bella, what I say, she did it. One of them's lying. And, one, and you want to know why? Because they don't want to get in trouble in the moment. So why would Jesus hold out a lie? They would get him killed. Unless it wasn't a lie. 
I got it, way ahead of myself. Um, he's deceiving these people into believing he's something more. That's the idea of liar. Okay. Yeah, maybe a lot of the gospel accounts is legitimate, but it was deception. Maybe even his disciples started to follow along with that in the years to come and hid the body or whatever it is. Again, that claim got them killed. (laughs) One of the things we can put forward as an argument against this is the quality of Jesus' character, which no one denies. No one can deny this. It's so how do you deny the quality of Jesus' character? When you read the Gospels, when you look at who he is, you see this, this, this absolute moral perfection that he presents us with. Historian and skeptic unbeliever, William Lucky wrote this in his History of European Morals. The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, not a liar, not a fraud, but the strongest incentive to its practice. In other words, he is the highest example and the one who has inspired the most to walk after it. And he's exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and than all the exhortations of moralists that have come before or ever will be. Some believers looking in and seeing his mark on history and going, there's just no way to deny that. This guy was moral perfection in the flesh. Um, The moment you read the Gospels, you're struck by this sort of thing. And people throughout history have been writing on it, not just there, but even within the Gospel records themselves. Let me just show you this. People that were trying to accuse him. It's just incredible to watch as this is highlighted in the Gospels for us. Do you you remember when he was bound and brought before the Sanhedrin? Judas had showed up in Gethsemane and brings him in. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court. And it says says this in um, Matthew 26, verses 59 and 60. The chief priests, the whole council, they were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Like, how do we get this man guilty? What can we do? Does anybody have something to say? Finally, two show up and say something. But even Mark tells us, man, their stories didn't align. They couldn't get it straight. They said, that's enough for us. Send them on to Pilate. So he goes to Pilate. While the chief priests and the elders are hurling accusations at him, Jesus gives no defense for himself. And you remember, we're told that Pilate was, Matthew 27, 14, greatly amazed. Swatching, in other words, the integrity of this man, that he did not just, everyone else start foaming at the mouth and accusing back and lashing back. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, there he is. And, And Pilate is just amazed at this. And we read later that he's convinced of Jesus' innocence. He calls out the Jews. He says, what evil has he done? Why do you want me to kill him? What evil has he done? Even Pilate's own wife sends word to him from her chamber at this point. And she writes, or she says this, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. John tells us that Pilate sought to release him. 
But the Jews would not have it. So they take him on to be crucified. And as he's there, hanging on the cross, yes, the great majority are mocking, spitting, jeering, gambling for his garments, whatever else. But there is one man on a cross next to him, a criminal. And he sees something going on and he protests in this moment. This man has done nothing wrong. Luke 23, 41. We are suffering justly. That's clear. This guy hasn't done a thing. How can we be mocking him? They keep going. They held him there. They pierced his side, whatever it is. And in those last moments of his death, or of his life, I should say, as he dies, a great many more come to this very same conclusion about his moral integrity, about his righteousness, about his innocence. The centurion, um, who would have been the Roman officer in charge of this whole crucifixion ordeal, sees the manner in which Jesus dies, and he says this in Luke twenty three forty seven. certainly this man was innocent. And then it's not just the centurion, but now all of a sudden Luke tells us in uh, uh, verse 48 that the crowds also who had assembled for this spectacle went home beating their breasts. In other words, saying, what have we done? What kind of man was this? The quality of his character was and is uncontestable, undeniable, irrefutable. He is not a liar. He is the righteousness of God. In fact, brothers and sisters, the most amazing thing about it is that he is my righteousness as well, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the what, righteousness of God. There's an exchange going on. And this innocent one is now my innocence. What a precious thing. He is not a liar. He is not a deceiver. He is the only righteous man who ever lived. Option number four now is just hobbling on its last legs here. It's hanging by a thread. Okay, if he's not liar, then he's a lunatic. Right? He's a lunatic. He's crazy. So, all right, maybe he was morally upright. He was trying to be genuine and honest. He just was dead wrong about himself. He was crazy. This gets to what C.S. Lewis was saying. Your option is what he's... he's He's like a man who thinks he's a poached egg. I don't even know what a poached egg is. I, don't, I like scrambled eggs. The poached egg's even worse. But he's crazy. He's like the guy you see on the side of the road. Not on his medication, whatever. Talking to himself. Talking to people you can't see. He's using words that no one in their right mind understands. Does that fit Jesus of Nazareth? Does that portrait fit him? Let me tell you something. There's a reason why most, of, most all of the major religions try to incorporate Jesus in one way or another. 
great teacher, great prophet. They can't deny that he's not crazy. They have to do something with him. Against this, we might put the, um, we, we, we might make note of the soundness of his mind. If we saw the quality of his character, that he's not a liar, we might make note of the soundness of his mind, that he's not a lunatic. Um, people cannot deny his wisdom. Uh, as psychiatrist J.T. Fisher asserts, if you were to take the sum total of all authoritative articles ever written, by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental hygiene, if you were to combine them and refine them and cleave out the excess verbiage, if you were to take the whole of the meat and none of the parsley, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and incomplete summation of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying everything that psychology and all of our, all of our experts have, have given us in the field of mental health. You want to know what it looks like if you were to sum it all down? An awkward version of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is still way better than what we have produced in all of these years of trying to figure it out. He says, and this would suffer immeasurably through comparison. For nearly 2,000 years, the Christian world has been holding in its hands the complete answer to its restless and fruitless yearnings. Here rests the blueprint for successful human life with optimum mental health and contentment. So Jesus' teachings are not the ravings of a lunatic. They are wise, and those who follow it, their lives start to fall in line as well. We can claim crazy. Festus might look at us and go, you're crazy. But they won't be able to deny at the same time a sanity that runs underneath it as we love in a way that people have never loved, as we live in a way people have not lived. Because we know a God that they don't know, a Christ that they don't know. This brings us to option five, and this is where we close. If Jesus is not a legend, we understand that the New Testament speaks of him accurately. If he is not, a mere luminary due to the grandiose and exclusive nature of his claims can't be if he is not a liar as evidenced by his exemplary quality uh, or the quality of his character if he is not a lunatic as made plain by the soundness of his mind then we're left with one final option and that is he is the Lord we take him at his word we receive him as the Gospels and the New Testament presents him to us. That he lived a sinless life. That he died a sinner's death. And that he rose again from the dead, whereby God made him Savior and Lord of all, Peter would say. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, 9. He is not legend, luminary, liar, Lunatic, he is the Lord. 
most amazing thing. He kind of exposits for Peter in the verses that follow back in our text what it means that he's the Christ. Wonder what he says? Not bow down to me, Peter, you're right. He says, I'm about to get low for you. I'm going to suffer, be rejected, and die. He is a Lord unlike any other who gives his life for us. The extent to which men go to buck the Lordship of Jesus Christ is laughable. We take the facts and twist them and have been for centuries. But the extent to which Jesus would go to get a rebellious people back under his loving lordship is even greater. You understand that? That he would come and be rejected by us, suffer, die, and rise again so that he could walk into the room and say, Thomas... Put your hands in my side. Place your fingers in my wounds. If you don't believe. And what does Peter, what does Thomas say as he does that? My Lord and my God. Wow. You're the Lord of all. Not just Lord, Savior. So we come back to that original question. Who do you say that I am? Okay, this is what everyone else is saying. These are all the options. Who do you say that I am? It's not going to be grandma's faith gets you into heaven. It's not going to be daddy's walk with God. Every man will stand, every woman will stand before God and answer that question for themselves. You hear that? Who do you say that he is? Is he just a legend? Is he just a luminary? Is he a liar, a lunatic? Or I hope I have made a case today before you that he is in fact Lord of all. And if he is Lord of all, the question that remains... Is he your Lord? Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that um, when we come to faith in you, we come into our right mind. God, that you open our eyes, you open our minds. It's the Heavenly Father who reveals to us that Jesus is who he says he is and more than we could ever conceive. Thank you for doing that for so many in this room. We just exalt in you, Jesus, as Lord of history, Lord of our lives, Lord of the universe. Not just Lord demanding our service, demanding our obedience, but Savior who gave himself so that we could know you again. Thank you, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen.